All right, all right. (laughs) Esther chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 1. After these events, King Achash Barosh, that's how you actually say that, he promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants were at the king's gate, bowed down, and they paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now, when it was that they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, the people also, to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people. Each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Hahash and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples, so they should be ready for this day. Isn't that nice? In verse 15, the couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Let's pray for a moment. Fathers, we look back now at Esther chapter 3. As we continue studying through your word, I ask, I pray, Lord, that you would speak life into our hearts. And that you would make the word alive to us. And that what we hear wouldn't just be study or intellectual pursuit, Father, but would be heart change. We ask your Holy Spirit to to do this, Lord. We ask your Holy Spirit to teach us and enlighten us and give us truth. For we come to you worshiping Father in spirit and in truth. We thank you that we can come before you and ask for this, for this instruction, which we know comes by your spirit. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray this morning. Amen. His name is Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. That's his moniker. He's the Hitler of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's the Ahmadinejad of his day. Even now, it's interesting, when Haman's name is read or spoken aloud by Orthodox Jews, they will spit and curse and hiss at the mention of his name. Annually, there's a festival called Purim that we're going to talk about next week. And each year, the story of Esther is read at Purim. And during that time, the Orthodox Jews will get incensed at the mention of Haman. Haman! Boo! Ah! Bad guy! Why is that? Because he is the symbol of anti-Semitism to the Jewish people. He stands in history as a picture of that horrific attitude. And what's interesting to me is that, and it's ironic... Persia's leadership today, you know Persia is Iran. Persia's leadership 
today has the same age-old irrational vitriolic hatred and rage toward Israel and the Jewish people that Haman did all those years ago. Ahmadinejad recently said the main solution is the elimination of the Zionist regime. He said anybody who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. He said Israel is a rotten, dried tree that will one day be annihilated in one storm. What kind of a storm do you suppose that is that he's talking about? Nuclear? By the way, sources inside Iran have shared some interesting news that really hasn't made it on the headlines. The Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the real power, the real force behind Ahmadinejad, he's been uh, secretly removed. Not from power, but from the public domain. He is in a secret place. They've moved him over this last week into a place somewhere in Iran, probably close to the border, whether it's to make a quick getaway or to be protected. And that's intriguing. We wonder, what's going on there? What's that all about? Is it that Iran is about to try and make some kind of move? Is it the the unrest among the people that has them concerned? Is, Is it their fear of Israel's attack on their nuclear reactors? We don't know, but things are stirring in the Middle East. Keep your eyes wide open there. But here, back in Esther... Haman is the antagonist of the story that, that we're involved in here. He's a political hack. Okay, he's been promoted by King Hashverosh. He's a power-hungry, social-climbing, self-important player in the story. And his name means magnificent. Haman, Mr. Magnificent. And that's what we'll refer to him as this morning, Mr. Magnificent. Let me tell you something, gang. People who view themselves with such conceit are dangerous. Because they rarely realize what they're actually doing. They don't understand the depth to which their behavior is impacting and affecting the lives here on earth. And the Lord had this to say about the arrogant, about the conceited. He said in Isaiah 2.12, The Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Peter wrote, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble grace to the humble that's the way he's called us to act even here toward one another with humility and grace not with arrogance and conceit not with an I'm better than you I've been here longer than you I know more than you attitude that's the stuff of Haman but we're called to be a humble people who really are putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves But what's interesting, and we talked about this Wednesday night, when this Haman comes along and runs into this this old Jew, this seemingly insignificant man named Mordecai, whose name, by the way, means little man. And I love the picture there. We've got Haman, Mr. Magnificent, and Mordecai, little man. And when Mr. Magnificent comes across little man, and little man refuses to bow down, it incenses Haman. It ticks him off. It freaks him out. You've got to wonder, why is this a big deal? Haman has it all. It's just one inconsequential little, little Jew here. Just ignore him. What's the big deal? Well, it was a big deal to Haman. Turn over to chapter 5 and take a look at this. Esther chapter 5, verse 11. Haman's in his home. He's talking with his wife and his friends. He's puffed up. He's proud of himself. And it tells us in verse 11 that Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons. In every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow, also, I'm invited by her with the king. That's to a second banquet that we're going to talk about Wednesday night. He's very impressed with himself. He's very impressed that the queen summoned him to herself. And, by the way, the inference there is that Haman thinks maybe Esther has something for him. She's got kind of a crush on him. And so she invited me to come. I know she's married to the king. (laughs) She's got eyes for me. And yet, watch this, verse 13, he says, Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Little man. And Mr. Magnificent is ticked off. He's freaked out. He's upset. He cannot stand this. This is amazing to me, but it's a picture of where pride takes us. You see, no matter how far you go, no matter how much you accomplish or how much you do, there's always one more thing that you haven't quite done. 
And young people understand this. The older you get in life, the more you look back and you go, wow, I, I, there was so much I was going to do and, I, and I've done a lot, but there's still so much more that I'm never going to accomplish. There are heights to which I'm never going to rise. Pride is an empty thing. Arrogance that cannot satisfy at the end of the day. No matter what we do in our lives. And here's this Haman. He's a perfect picture of it. He has it all. The only thing he doesn't have is the throne itself in Persia. And yet when one person out of dozens, out of possibly hundreds, refuses to bow down, I can't enjoy my life. I'm upset by this. This guy's ticking me off. I've got to do something. And of course his wife and friends say, Oh, that's not a big problem. Kill him. Would you pass the butter, honey? You know. And they're having this little banquet. And they say, I just... Set up some gallows and hang him, and you'll be done with him. Oh, it's, okay, it's a good idea. These are some pretty, pretty pagan people. But First John chapter two verse sixteen, the Bible tells us all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. The world's passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of, the, of God lives forever. And of course, we shared this Wednesday. The old saying goes: you can usually tell the size of the man by the size of the thing that irritates him the most. And in the case of Haman, it's little man. And so what we see here is, ironically, Mr. Magnificent is the real little man in this story. But like all bullies throughout history, what Haman lacks in size and character, he makes up for with threats and brutality. It's always the way it is with the bullies, isn't it? You always know, and I've told my kids this many times over the years, the bullies, when they bully you, you know why they do it? Because they got nothing in themselves. Because their attitude toward themselves, they they have so little feeling for themselves, so little confidence in themselves that they try and push out on everybody else. And that's what bullies have always done. That's what Haman does. That's what the Hitlers of the world have done. Well, I'd like you to notice a few things this morning about Haman and what's going on here in Esther chapter 3 because it's pertinent for today. Three things to note if you'd like to take notes and keep an outline of this. We're going to look at three things. The region, the reason, and the recognition. The reason, the, re, the region, the reason, and finally, the recognition. Number one, the region. And this is important to understand. Haman's threat is not simply to the Jews there in the capital of Persia. Not simply to the Jews in a, in a localized setting. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. We're talking worldwide. Mass extermination of every Jew living at the time. Down in verse 8, it says, Haman said to the king, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among your peoples and your provinces. Their laws are different. They do not observe the king's laws, he said. So it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. What are we talking about here? Genocide. And remember that in the kingdom of Persia at the time, there was a land that was part of that kingdom. That would be Judah. And Jerusalem, this edict, when it went out, went out to Judah, to the people who had returned. You can place the story of Esther, this this book of Esther, historically you can place it between chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra. That's where it happened. So the first six chapters we know, Zerubbabel and Yeshua, they went back with the people, the first group of people. And this is before Ezra himself went back. So this is happening to Esther in this capital of Persia while the people are trying to get back into the land. And we know at that point 49,897 Jews have gone back to the land while the vast majority remain in the provinces throughout Persia not returning to the land at all. And this threat from Haman is to all the Jewish people. It's complete massacre when we read the story of Esther, sometimes we, we miss that. We need to understand it's as bad as the actions of Hitler. What Haman did, what he wanted to do, what he sought to accomplish, the final solution of Hitler was the eradication of all Jews worldwide, and that's what's going on with this guy, Haman. And all because one stubborn little Jew wouldn't just bow. Come on, Mordecai. Just bow down, dude. I mean, you told Esther to keep her Jewishness on the QT. How about you? What are you doing? Stirring things up? Not to mention the fact that Mordecai himself was in a better position now that Esther was queen. What do you mean? Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. It tells us that in those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Well, right there we understand something's happened with Mordecai. To sit at the king's gate means you are now one of the judges. 
He's been given a seat of authority and position to sit at the gate. That's what it meant. So he's now among the, kind of has some authority there. He's moving up. Things are looking good for Mordecai in the world. Why would you spoil that now? Just button it up. Put a lid on it. Don't tell him who you are. You told Esther not to. Keep it quiet. Why risk it all now? This is just my opinion. But I believe Mordecai is beginning to enlarge his faith. I think the man who at one time said, Esther, you've got to keep this quiet because you know, he can't know that you're a Jew. I think he's now starting to see that that doesn't work out so well. And he's standing there and they've been given this order that you've got to bow down before this man and he's probably thinking about some of the, some of the great history of his people. Thinking about the fact that his God said you shall have no other gods before me. And so he says, you know what? That's it. I, I'm not going to bow. One little thing. He does one little thing and his faith increases dramatically. Look at verse 3. The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? And now it was that they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them. So they tattletailed. They told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. To see if his refusal to bow was okay. Is that alright? He doesn't have to bow. We have to bow. Is that alright? So they go to tell Haman about this. What's happening with Mordecai is often what happens with us, gang. Our faith, taking, taking one little step of faith, begins to increase. The Bible tells us, Psalm 18.35, You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. Romans 14.4 tells us the Lord is able to make us stand. 1 Peter 1.5 tells us we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Are you hearing that? You getting what the Word tells you about walking with Jesus? And if that's not enough, Jude 24, He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. You see, we have a promise when we walk in faith with Jesus. And that promise is we're going to stand. That there is nothing man can do against you, against me. That God is not stronger. We have the power to stand. And that power is not in ourselves. And that power is not because we've been trained up or prepared or we've gone to the right church or we've hung out with the right people or we've studied the right passages. The power gang is by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, in my life. The problem is when I think the power is from me and I get a little nervous, that power falters. When I'm around non-Christian people and I'm relying on myself to talk about Jesus or to be bold in my faith and I'm thinking, okay, what was that that I learned in Sunday school? What was that? How was I trained? I forget what the, how the, what the steps were in evangelism and, and I, I falter. But in those moments, if I just say, God, I need your power. He provides what we need when we need it. He gives us the strength to stand. It's His power. It's not our power. Mordecai is, is starting to grow here. He's getting stronger. He would later counsel Esther in that famous statement of chapter 4, verse 14. He says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Key phrase of the book of Esther. For such a time as this. And I think it's starting to impact and affect the way Mordecai is thinking. What am I doing here? Let me ask you a question. Do you stand in faith for Jesus before people? Do you own your faith in Christ the way Mordecai owned his Jewishness? Are you willing to stand up and simply, not even, not even preach a sermon, but stand up and just say, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus. When someone says, hey, we're going to go do this really cool thing, and you know it's contrary to God's will, will you stand and just say, you know, I'd love to hang out with you guys, but I'm a believer in Jesus. Are you willing to make that known? There comes a point in every believer's life, and actually it comes more often than once, when you either own your faith or you disown your faith. Want to know how to disown your faith? Keep your mouth shut. Say nothing. And you are disowning what you claim, what we claim, even here this morning, to believe. Keep our mouth shut. Keep it quiet. 
Some believe that faith is a personal thing. Well, don't ever discuss politics and religion. Well, whatever you feel about politics, let me tell you something about discussing religion and sharing your faith. The idea that it's better to keep your faith to yourself is a lie from the pit of hell. You cannot find chapter or verse that tells us keep our faith quiet. Don't share about Jesus. Make sure whatever you do that you keep it a personal thing. Your faith is not a personal thing, gang. It's a communal thing. It's a shared fellowship thing. And our faith, our faith is an outspoken thing. If you have been touched by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart, then you have to share. Otherwise, you don't realize you've been touched by the gospel. You have not owned your faith. Yeah, but I don't want to stir the pot, Pastor. Okay, Oscar Milk Toast, listen up. <laughs> Harry Ironside in his commentary put, put a great spin on this. Really pulled, I think, history into the now. He put it this way. Speaking of Mordecai, he said, What a mess this obstinate little Jew had made of it all. Could he not conform to the customs of the times? Did he not know that things were different now from what they were in the old days of Moses and the judges and Samuel? Is this not how man reasons today? Oh, I know the way the church was 30, 40 years ago, but it's different now. You know, I understand, things have changed a bit. We've got to roll with the changes and shift our theology, and, and we need to flow in the culture and have more of a conversation than, than declaring truth. Declaring truth was nice in those days, you know, back in the 50s church. Great, you know, all those hellfire and damnation sermons that was good then, but don't bring it now because you're going to offend somebody. Hey, let me tell you something, the cross is an offense. And I can't change that. The cross is an offense. And sometimes I need offending to open my eyes and open my ears that I might hear the truth. Our silence can be so convenient for the moment. But you need to understand, in every dispensation, in every age, the true man of God, the true woman of God, are those who are characterized by standing up. By refusing to bow. By refusing to remain silent. Hiding the Christianity, hiding the faith, tucking it over to the side, because man, if I let that out, I might not be invited to this gathering or that function. If I let my faith out, they might not talk to me like they did before. Hey, praise God. Maybe they shouldn't be talking to you like they were or are. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10.37, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. Side notes. Focusing on the coming of Jesus Christ will bolster your faith. Because if you know at any second he might be there, he might arrive, he might be here, man, I want to be ready in that second. Which is why we focus, why we talk about the second coming of Christ so much. Because it could be today. We might not get another flake of snow before Jesus arrives and calls us home. And if we can live with that kind of assurance, guess what? Courage is right with it. Bring it on. What's the worst that you can do to me? Kill me? Okay. I'll just get home faster. Not a problem. My righteous one, the Bible says, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back... My soul has no pleasure in him. Do you remember? I've probably shared this before, but back in the uh, Bush-Clinton presidential campaign, uh, first Bush, Bush Sr., when they were going through all, and and we're we're watching it as this kind of no-name governor from Arkansas was raising up in popularity, and, and people, where's this guy coming from? And they began to have the debates. The last debate, there's a defining moment in Bush Sr.'s loss of the presidency. At least in my eyes. I'm watching the debate there and I remember what happened. Clinton gets up. He begins to share. He's walking out. He's in the face of the people. He's down with them. He's, he's giving his closing remarks and he goes back and sits down. And they say, okay, uh, President Bush, uh, you have some closing moments. And he did this. Yeah, I'd like a few things I'd like to share. I just, and he started to talk. The moment he got behind his chair, I went, he's hiding. He's shrinking back. He doesn't want the job. I mean, that's the way it looked. It was, it was stunning to me. And that was the moment, at least in my mind, where Bush Sr. lost that election. Because he shrunk back. We are not of those who shrink back to the destruction of the soul. We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We are those who are called to stand up. Man, let's stand. Let's learn from Mordecai. And it can be a little thing. You don't have to do a big, massive thing. Just take one step of faith, because faith births more faith. 
That's, that's a dynamic we need to understand in our walk with Jesus. A little faith births a little more faith. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever taken a step of faith, it makes you a little more courageous. Man, I'm still here and I'm still loved by Jesus. Let me take another step. And then another. And then another. And you begin to snowball as courage begets courage. Mordecai chooses to stand up. And he finds the strength now for the rest of the story. He remains standing even as things get turned up, even as the heat is turned up beneath him. He goes to Esther and he says, you tell him. You go. You're our only hope. You've got to speak out. The time is now for such a time as this. Now, back to Haman. His anti-Semitic rage cannot be limited to the refusal of one Jew to bow down. And by the way, don't think yourself as so important (laughs) that if you share your faith, you might mess it up for some other Christians. It's already going to be messed up. There's nothing you and I can do to mess it up for others. What we can do is speak the name of Jesus and see people saved. But there is something else going on here with Haman. We've seen the region, the entirety of Persia, which was the known nation of the world, the, the world power of the day. Secondly, the reason. The reason for this hatred in Haman. You see, the Holy Spirit sees fit to give us a piece of the puzzle, I believe, here in the book. A puzzle that begins to fit things into place. Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Why do we have this enemy's pedigree so specifically listed for us? Bible students, you may remember the story. Now I'm going to tell it to you, but turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, and put your finger there for a moment. You might remember back in Exodus 17, the story is Moses and the children of Israel are making their way across the wilderness toward the Promised Land. They haven't gotten to Mount Horeb yet, to the Ten Commandments in that glorious time. They're still moving along. But what happens as they go along is they come under attack by a terrorist regime known as the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were terrorists. The Amalekites attacked from the back. They always tried to take out the weak and the infirm and the elderly. They took out the easy prey, the easy targets. They were bullies. And so this battle gets waged between Joshua leading the people of Israel and the Amalekites. Well, up on a hill, up above, and it's a great picture, we have Moses and his brother Aaron and Hur. So there's Moses and his and her, and they're standing there up on the mountaintop, and Moses has his arms raised. Do you recall the story? And as long as his arms are raised, the battle is victorious for Israel. But man, when he gets tired, his shoulders begin to ache, and his arms come down, the enemy begins to win the battle. He's got to keep those arms up. It's a picture gang of prayer. The intercessory prayer. Staying faithful, constant, as we talked about last week. Constant in prayer. And even more so, you've got her on one side, Aaron on the other. And they grab hold of his arms, and they hold his arms up for him, because he can't do it by himself. Again, that's prayer. Gathering together in intercession before the Father. And as this is going on, they finally keep his arms up. The battle is won. The Amalekites are are driven off. And we're told in Exodus 17, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he named it, The Lord is my banner. That is Yahweh Nisi. The Lord my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Skip ahead now, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. We fast forward 400 years from the time of Moses. Now we're 600 years before the time of Esther. It's the dawning of a new era there in Israel. Saul, the first king, is about to be set up. He's the people's choice. We've talked about that. That he is the one the people wanted. They wanted a king like the nation. So God gave them one. He gave them Saul. Here's how it begins. Then Samuel said to Saul, Samuel the prophet said, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Watch this. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. This is one of those verses that probably isn't the most popular to share on a Sunday morning, especially if you're trying to attract visitors. (laughs) See, that's the kind of stuff I don't like about the Old Testament God. That's why I like Jesus, because He's different. (laughs) No, He's not. (laughs) Same God. 
So what's going on here? How could God do this? I mean, it's so extreme. We have to understand, gang, the Amalekites were wicked terrorists. They were a debased people. They were so bad that those infants and those children didn't have a prayer. In fact, I mean, I'll throw out my opinion on this one. I think by taking them out, then, God provided for salvation for them later. If they had been raised as Amalekites, they would have been raised pagan and never would have had a prayer for an eternal life. But regardless of the reasoning behind it, and you can disagree with that, and that's fine, you can be wrong, I'm okay with that. But regardless of the reasoning, we need to see the Amalekites for who they were. The Lord said in Deuteronomy 25.17, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked you and all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Well the people forgot but God didn't. And as he sets up the first king he gives them one assignment. Saul's very first assignment I want you to go and finish the job. Take out Amalek. Watch this. It's Saul's first marching orders. Watch what he does. Verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And so, verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. All right, Saul. And he captured, verse 8, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless Well, that they utterly destroyed. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. (laughs) How, How long before had he made Saul king? I mean, it didn't take Saul long to be disobedient to the Lord. Some might say, well, disobedient, but, but he did attack the Amalekites. He took them out. All he did was spare the king. How is that disobedience? It's partial obedience. And partial obedience is disobedience. You either obey or you don't. There's no somewhere in between. The Lord regretted it. He said, He has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Why is God so angry? Obedience is huge to the Father. Saul disobeyed. He gave him an order to take out Agag. You could call it a gag order. (laughs) Sorry. That was the only order he had given him. I want you to go take out King Agag and the Amalekites. Take them out completely. Don't leave a single thing living, including all the flocks, herds, and everything else. Well, Saul sees the flocks, herds, and everything else and goes, they're kind of nice. I mean, that's some good sheep there. He made a bad move by (laughs) hanging on to them. He sees the king as maybe, I don't know, a possible political ally. Or maybe he would come across to the people as a gracious king. I'm going to spare King Agag. Partial obedience, gang, to the Lord second guesses his wisdom. Partial obedience to God says, I know more than he does. Partial obedience to God the Father says, I know what God said to do, but, you know, I'm going to apply a little of my own understanding. I mean, I've been around, you know, I've been here 45 years. I know a few things. So I'm going to apply some of that. Father, I know you're God. I know you did the whole creation thing. Nice job with that. But I've got some things I've learned too. You see how arrogant it is? How stunningly arrogant? By the way, you want to hear stunning arrogance? This blew my mind. At the Climate Change Conference, and I'm not going to say anything. Okay, I will say something political. But (laughs) at the Climate Change Conference in Carbenhagen this week, Anyway, they're having trouble agreeing on anything. You may have read this in the news, and, and they're coming down to having to release two statements as to what they're going to do. The two things they've agreed upon. One is they've agreed that they're going to set up a fund for poorer nations so that they could meet, meet the, uh, the climate change expectations of the world. 
we're going to give some money and set it aside to, to this poor nation, but we're going to tell them, here's some money for you, but don't use it on food and shelter or anything like that. We want you to use it on, on, on carbon uh, footprints and, you know, so you can keep up with it. That's one of the things they've agreed upon. Second thing they've agreed upon, and this blows my mind, we are going to limit the increase of the Earth's temperature by two degrees over the next decade. Really? Wow. We're, we're more powerful than I thought we were. I mean, that's pretty impressive. We're going to do this. Okay. Back to this partial obedience game. <laughs> I just had to share. And second guesses the authority, the wisdom of God. When he says, I want you to take out all the Amalekites. Look, we could sit here and try and reason it through. But the truth is, God knows something we don't know. God knows something Saul doesn't know. We come along and we say, I know, I know, Lord, you said sex outside of marriage is, is, is not an appropriate thing. It's a bad thing. Don't do it. I know you said that, but times have changed. It's different now than it was. You know, when our country was founded several hundred years ago, it was founded by Puritans. They were very cautious about that stuff. Anyway, we're different people now. So we're trying to roll with the changes. I know you said don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, but my friends, you know, it's a social thing, right? It's just social. I know you said flee immorality, but God, you don't understand our world. Really? We're a postmodern world. We need a new approach. We need to have a conversation as opposed to doctrinal soundness and truth and teaching and proclamation. We don't need proclamation. We just need to hang out and chat with our brothers, the uh, you know, people of all kinds of faiths. What Saul didn't know, what we don't know, is what the Lord does know. In Saul's case, his partial obedience, the Lord knew this. If Saul didn't completely kill the Amalekites, an Amalekite would completely kill Saul, which is exactly what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Saul is on Mount Gilboa. A battle is being raised. Jonathan is dead. His sons are dead. Saul gets wounded. And along comes an Amalekite. The very people he was supposed to wipe out. And the Amalekite runs him through with a sword. God knew. If you do this, you'll be protected from that. But you didn't do this. So guess what? Now you get to deal with what I knew was coming. But it's more than just Saul, gang. The Lord knew Saul's disobedience would not just impact him, but would have far-reaching implications for the entire people of Israel. For there in Persia, Haman the Agagite, enemy of the Jews, enters the picture. Haman the Agagite. Now I will tell you, commentators will argue and, and disagree about, well, was, this, was it because he was of the line of Agag who Saul spared and came down the line, and so that's why he's called an Agagite, or, or was it because he was from a region called Agag? You know what? I tend to prefer the former, because I think the Holy Spirit is purposeful in telling us he is an Agagite. He is of that line. But we need to understand that either way, Haman comes from a long line of satanically motivated Jew haters. As far back as the Amalekite king Agag, who tried to take out, who wanted to fight against Israel, as far back as the Amalekites 400 years before that, as far back as creation, as far back as Cain killing his brother Abel, there has always been this this seed of hatred, and it's grown over the years. And it makes no sense. If you look in the world today, anti-Semitism does not make sense. Well, look at verse 5, back in, in Esther chapter 3. Verse 5 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. That Hebrew word rage there means wrathful fury. It's not even thought out. It's just flying off the handle into complete madness. And in verse 6, we're told that he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. I'm mad at this guy, but I'm going after every single one of them who share his name. I'm going after everyone who happens to be Jewish. It doesn't make sense. But satanic fury knows no bounds. And the reason we see anti-Semitism even today is because of Satan. It's a very simple truth. Satan hates the Jewish people. Why? Because they're the people of God. And because God still has promises to them that need to be fulfilled. Take out the Jews and I can mess up God's promises. This is the satanic thinking. There's even more uh, hidden Satan uh, work in this. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, 
Per, that is, the lot was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. What's happening here is that he's rolling out the calendar, he's rolling the lot, he's casting, uh, casting the lots on every single day of the calendar year. And he's seeing where the lot falls. Why? Because he's superstitious. He's probably got either magicians or soothsayers there, and they're rolling out, and they're saying, okay, Nisan the first. No, no, that's not good. Then second, third, fourth, all the way through 12 months till they get to the 12th month, the 13th day, and the lot falls on that day, and he goes, ah, that's the day the gods want me to annihilate the Jews. Side note, the hand of providence was at work even in that, for the lot fell on the last month of the year and this was the first month of the year God providing himself a year to work his plans out with Esther and Mordecai and the saving of his people but there is a satanic thing even in this verse 8 again tells us he goes to the king and he says hey there's a certain people they're not like anybody else they have their own laws they don't follow your laws he says if it's pleasing to the king verse 9 let it be decreed they be destroyed and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver whew 10,000 talents of silver is the equivalent of somewhere between 35 and 40 million dollars. Where is he coming up with this kind of money? I'll tell you where. Skip down to verse 13 at the end of the verse. He says, uh, destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women, children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month they dar, to seize their possessions as plunder. Now that's got to ring a bell, you know, with, with the king, with Xerxes, because he's thinking... You know, I, got, I took a hit in my last battle, my last war. I could use a little money. Okay. Wipe them out. We'll take their stuff. The Jewish people down through the years have always prospered. Isn't that interesting? Everywhere they've gone, they've prospered to the point that the world has hated them for it. While people are, are struggling. In Germany, you know what was going on in Hitler's day? Germany was in serious, horrible recession. And Hitler comes along and starts saying, it's the Jews' fault. Look at them. They're rich. They're the ones who have the money. While the rest of you poor struggling souls don't have anything. It's their problem. They are the problem and the solution is let's get rid of them. And the campaign, and you, if you ever go to Israel, you've got to go to Yad Vashem and look at the Holocaust Memorial. The campaign against the Jewish people by Hitler was just incredible. Children's board games that promoted anti-Semitism. Cartoons, comic books that were written showing Jews with big hooked noses and painting them as these horrible uh, people that, that would eat the flesh of other people's children. I mean, it, it was, and on and on and on against the people of Israel. What did they do? You realize the Jewish people make up less than one tenth of one percent of the world's population, and yet they've received twenty six percent of all Nobel prizes. That's more than one in four of every Nobel Prize has been won by a Jew. Why is that? Because the hand of providence remains on its people. I'm not saying that the Jewish people are always right. I'm not saying, hey, Israel, everything Israel does is correct. No, it's not. They make mistakes, they fail, they sin. And honestly, at this point, unless a Jewish person has accepted Jesus as Messiah, they are still a lost person. But the truth is, God has His hand on the people Israel. Because God has a plan in place. And the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, Romans 11.29 tells us. When He says He's going to do it, you better believe He is going to do it. But there's also a plan of Satan to take out the Jewish people, a supernatural hatred toward them, and that's the real reason behind Haman's hatred, is Satan himself. But there's something big here, gang, and we need to actually go back and make a little revision. We said the region being impacted by this was the area of Persia? No, no. It's far greater than that. Do you realize the faith of Mordecai and Esther are part of the fabric of your salvation? God said, I'm going to bring a Savior through my people Israel. If Haman had had his way and Israel was eradicated, guess who wouldn't have come? At least by God's promise and design. Jesus would not have come. Our salvation... Our salvation, yours and mine, is at risk here in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's what's going on here. The region is massive. It is Satan trying to step in and stop what God promised He was going to do. Satan continues to try and stop what God's promised to do, even with the Jewish people today, because God said, I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to set my son on the throne of David, and he is going to reign. And it hasn't happened. And if Satan can stop it, 
Well, then he can say, look, God can't keep His promises. And so he continues even today. Amazing. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 tells us, speaking of Israel, theirs are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God, blessed forever. The region in Esther's story includes every saved person in Jesus Christ throughout all history. This story is ours and it impacts us. So the region encompasses all saved people. The reason for Haman's hatred for the Jews is Satan's hatred for the Lord. And finally, number three, the recognition. Verse 14. The recognition. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. They're lifting the glass and the people are going, What? What's, what? The Jews are not traitors. They're not troublemakers. They've committed no crime. This doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for such an extreme extermination. And so throughout Persia, the people are confused, but even now, and this is what you've got to hear, please hear this. If you're taking a little nap, come on back. <laughs> the reason, gang, that I want you to see here, the recognition is that providence is at work. The people didn't know it. The people, as chapter 3 closes out and as chapter 4 begins, the people are scared to death. They're freaking out. Their world is falling apart. Can you imagine being a Jew there in Persia? And an edict is written up and you look and you say, okay, oh, hey, that's great. I've got one year to my obliteration. I have one year until all of us are going to be exterminated by the mighty Persia. What? What what did we do? That doesn't make sense. Think about that. If if Barack Obama, and, and this is not a political statement, He just happened to be president right now. If he signed an edict saying all Christians will be killed next December 13th, how would you feel? That is exactly what happened here. All Jews, you're dead. What? What did we do? Why? And they're freaking out. And as you begin to read Esther chapter 4, they're in a panic. They're they're fasting. They're in sackcloth and ashes. They're mourning. They're crying out. They're wailing. They're in torment. They're in anguish. They're scared to death. Esther chapter 4 is possibly the most, well, it's one of the most tragic passages in the whole entire Bible. Because in Esther chapter 4, the Jewish people are scared to death and they don't have to be. They don't have to be. They just don't know what God's hand of providence is up to. If they did, if they realized that another decree had been signed... You know, he comes along, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, comes along and signs a decree calling for the extermination of the Jewish people. But prior to that, another one had been signed. Do you remember what it was? Queen Vashti is no longer to be my queen. She's out of here. I want a new queen. And God goes, perfect. I'll give you Esther. And I'm going to place Esther in the right place for such a time as this. So Esther's there, and God's working on it. He has it well in hand. Nobody knows that throughout all the province of Persia. They're scared to death. It reminds me of a time when another world ruler made a decree, thinking in his greatness and grandeur and magnificence that it was important to count the little people under his rule. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, named Jesus. Rome was bearing down on the Jewish people. It was an ugly, scary time. The cross was a very common thing in that day, even at the time of Jesus' birth. To walk down the road and see Jews hung on crosses was not a surprise. Things were not good. Who knew? Who knew that that night in Bethlehem, a child was going to be born? By the decree of mighty Caesar Augustus, go register in your towns. And God said, yeah, back back, uh, 400 years earlier in in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's, that's where he's going to be born. And Caesar decrees it, and the child comes in the hand of providence. Once again, God is moving. He's at work. What I'm saying by all this, gang, 
is we need to learn how not to live in chapter 4, but in chapter 9. You see, in chapter 9, and we'll get to it next week, Purim. It's a great celebration. It's a festival of the salvation of the Jewish people that's celebrated every year. We'll talk about that next week. We need to live in chapter 9. The place of the celebration of our salvation, not in chapter 4, the fear, the mourning, the dread of what might happen. God is at work. God is here. Hi, Hunter. Hi, Becky. How you guys doing? I'm sorry, but it's so good to see you guys. Are you just like, did you just fly in for this morning? You did. All right. Going to go back this afternoon? Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I love them. God is at work here. He is at work in this place. We need to understand this in our lives. This is one of the biggest things to get in our faith. Gang, God is at work, and we are not living in chapter 4 with despair. We are living in chapter 9 with the celebration of our salvation. All is right with God. He is taking care of it. And if you feel like life's out of control, hey, so be it. Maybe life is right now. But the hand of providence is at work in this world. The hand of providence is at work in your life. And rather than fear and moan and wail and put on sackcloth and ashes, which would be a little embarrassing here anyway, praise God. It's that old thing that we've talked about before. Praise Him on this side of the Red Sea before He parts the water. He's going to. He's going to part the water. Remember what He said to Esther, what Mordecai said, hey, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. It's going to happen. But maybe you're here for such a time as this. Listen, you may feel like a little man, a little woman this morning. You may feel like your role in this whole big thing is insignificant. Let me tell you something. Mordecai's and Esther's who are sitting here right now. You are in this world for such a time as this. This is your time to stand up for Jesus. This is your time. Oh, Rick, I'm 75 years old and I've lived my life. This is your time. Well, I'm only 14. What can I do? This is your time to stand up for Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't, guess what? Deliverance is still coming. God is still going to save people. But perhaps you have been placed where you are for such a time as this. It is a call to faith. It's a call to not shrink back, to trust the Lord and to stand up. Little men, little women, stand up. And be great for the Lord by His Spirit within you. 1 John 5, 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Our deliverance is already come and gone and is coming again and His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's be a people who stand up for Him. And let the world know we are not ashamed to be called Christians. Let's stand right now. Father, I pray that You would open our mouths wide and fill them with Your words. And give us words to speak in the right season at the right time. And Father, we pray for opportunities to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with those who have never heard, who haven't chosen to believe. Father, I pray that we will no longer be a people of personal faith but a people who are vocal and verbal and willing to share our faith with this world. Only by Your Spirit. Only by Your power. But we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.